Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ask and it shall be given. After a week with Pastor Mike in Revelation, we are back in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. A letter where he tells the Corinthians, you guys are a mess. And I love you anyway. 1 Corinthians 14. I think most of you know my daughter, Michaela just finished her first year at Evangel University. And if you know my daughter, you probably have heard about my long-standing deal with my daughter. This goes back like 15 years. It's a deal that we made a long time ago that says if I use her as a sermon illustration, I owe her $5. Today's probably going to cost me 20 but it's going to be worth it to be able to point something out as we get back into this section of Paul's letter dealing with spiritual gifts, and specifically this morning, the gift of tongues. I bring up my daughter, knowing it's going to cost me, because teachers and professors at Evangel University, where she attends, where she goes to school, would disagree with most, if not all, of what I'm about to say. Because Evangel University is part of the Assemblies of God denomination. And the Assemblies believe and teach that tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, is evidence that someone has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you speak in tongues, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit in the Assemblies tradition, you speak in tongues. I'm going to disagree with that this morning. And they would disagree with me. But... But even though that's true, even though we have this disagreement, I've got no problem at all whatsoever with my daughter going to school there. In fact, I have no problem with her majoring in theology there, which is what she's doing. I also had no problem with her going to high school at Classical School of Wichita. She goes there. Brandy, who was just leading worship, teaches there. Becky, who was leading worship, sends her kids there. Classical schools, teachers and administrators, not all of them, but most of them, are all the way in the other direction. Most of my daughter's high school teachers were cessationists. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They not only don't believe that the gift of tongues is evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're not sure they believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're sure that they don't believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today which I would also disagree with. What's my point, and why am I investing $20 to make it? <laughs> my point is the conversation that we're going to have today about tongues is an important conversation. I mean, we're talking about God's Word, and we're talking about a section of God's Word that contains instruction to the church. This is important. We're going to read it carefully. We're going to apply it, I hope, diligently, but if someone reads it differently than how we read it and applies it inconsistently with how we live it, I'm not going to shout anathema at them. I'm not going to stand outside their church or their school or their university with a torch in one hand and a pitchfork in the other shouting, die, heretics, die! Some people make it out to be that kind of thing. I don't think it is. No, I'm going I'm to treat them, if I encounter them, when I encounter them, as the people that they are. Brothers and sisters in the Lord who disagree with us about something. I'm going to love them. 
And if the subject comes up, yeah, I'm going to tell them, hey, love you, mean it, and because I love you, i got to tell you, I think you're wrong about this, but I still love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, so with that as a rather expensive introduction, let's dive into our chapter and try to wrap our hearts around what Paul is saying. This thing that people have been disagreeing about for a long, long time. When we left off, like I said, Paul was talking about spiritual gifts. He started talking about them in chapter 12, continued talking about them in chapter 13. And when we left off, I know we've been away from this for a week, so, so just to kind of reconnect with where we were. When we left off, Paul was telling us the purpose of spiritual gifts is what? Love. That was his main point in chapter 13. When we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're given spiritual gifts, teaching, helps, and administration, and tongues, all kinds of gifts with one purpose, to love, to serve, to bless, to build up the church in Christ Jesus. And having said that in chapter 13, Paul's going to continue with that thought this morning in chapter 14, telling us, verse 1, pursue love. Pursue love and in service of love, desire spiritual gifts. Gifts that will help you love. Gifts that will enable you to love. Now, if I read that because I'm me and I'm selfish, my next question is going to be, what's the best way to do that? How, how, how can I do that better than anyone else? How, how, can, I, how can I be the best person? at? Because Paul said back in chapter 12, earnestly desire the best gift. So which one is that? Because I want it. Because I had the best gift, then I'm going to be the best Christian. Now part of me knows that Paul already answered that. He said back in chapter 12, verse 11, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to each one according to his perfect will. Which means the best gift, by definition, the best gift for me is the one God gave me. God gifted me. We talked about this a while ago. I don't think that the lists of spiritual gifts that we encounter in Scripture are exhaustive. I don't think that they're denotative. I think they're representative. So if, if I look at those lists, I say, well, I've got you know, some teaching, some help, some leadership, maybe some wisdom if we think about wisdom as problem solving. I, but, but you put it together, I got the gift of Patrick. I got the gift of me, and God has given you a unique combination of gifting to make you the very best you. But see, that doesn't stop us from looking around, does it? Looking at other people. What's their gifting? What are they doing with it? How are people looking at them in their gifting? We know on some level the comparison is the thief of joy, right? But we do it anyway, and the Corinthians were doing it anyway, and they were deciding, some of them at least, that tongues was the best gift. And the people who had that gift were the best people. The holiest, bestest, mostest spiritualist Christians. Patrick, you've been talking about tongues all morning. What are you talking about? Can we define our terms, please? Sure, tongues is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we see first at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon believers after they tarried in Jerusalem the way that Jesus had instructed them to. Holy Spirit came upon believers, and they spoke in different languages. Languages which they didn't understand as they were speaking, but others recognized and say, hey, you're, you're speaking my native tongue. You're speaking the language that people spoke where, where I grew up. But the thing is, apparently in Paul's day, 
some 20, 25 years later, people looked at that event, just, just like the Assemblies of God and some of our other Pentecostal brethren look at that event today and say, that's what's supposed to happen. That's what normally follows the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the normative experience we're supposed to have as believers. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit. We speak in tongues. A couple problems with that view. Actually, three that I'll mention this morning. First, it's bad hermeneutics. It's, 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 it's not sound biblical interpretation to build doctrine from narrative. I'll say that a different way. Just because something is described in Scripture doesn't mean it's prescribed by Scripture. Slavery is an easy example. Slavery is spoken of often in Scripture. That doesn't mean God thinks it's a good idea. Polygamy is described throughout the Old Testament, but it's 180 degrees contrary to God's plan for marriage. Tongues are described in Scripture as sometimes following the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but nowhere do we read that that's normal or universal or to be expected in every case by everyone. In fact, and here's point number two, if we trace the gospel as it goes out in Acts 9, well, actually Acts 8 and 9 and 10, and then later in, in 19, Jesus said, you know, it's going to be Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts. If we follow the gospel going out into the world, sometimes the baptism of the Holy Spirit, yes, is accompanied by people speaking in tongues. Sometimes. Sometimes it isn't. Now, someone who disagrees with me is going to say, well, you don't know that it didn't happen. It's described as happening sometimes. The times that we don't read that it happened, you don't know that it didn't. Maybe it happened and Luke just didn't write about it. You can't make an argument from silence, Patrick. Okay, that's fair. I hear that, except. Here's the third point. Paul says it's not universal. Paul says clearly it's not the normative experience of believers. He writes to the Corinthian church, glance back to chapter 12, verse 8, and he says, Corinthians, y'all have different gifts. To one is given the word of wisdom, another word of knowledge, another faith, another healings, another miracles, another prophecy, another discernment, to another different kinds of tongues. Different people, different gifts, Paul just said. And he says the same thing, or at least something similar, look down in verse 29, same chapter, chapter 12, verse 29. Paul asks rhetorically, are all apostles? I don't think so. Are all prophets? Obviously not. Are all teachers? You got to say no. Are all workers of miracles? Clearly no. Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? And we can tell from how he's asking. It's a rhetorical question. From the way he asks, we understand Paul means the answer to be no, and he's expecting the Corinthians to agree the answer is no, which tells us what? Tongues is a wonderful gift but not a universal gift. And, back to chapter 14, it's not the best gift. Let's finish verse 1. We're going at a blinding pace this morning. Pursue love. I like the New Living Translation. Make love your aim. And desire spiritual gifts to help you love, but especially that you may prophesy. Why? Paul's going to tell us. Verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him except God. 
However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. We're not at Pentecost anymore, Paul is saying. Gospel's going out. Church is being built. And in the context of the church, and especially in the context of the church service, you got to recognize the gift of tongues is directed where? Paul just told us. Gift of tongues is directed to God. Yeah. And if we glance back at the book of Acts and we see the gift of tongues in operation, we see Paul's right, shockingly. Acts 2.11 Pentecost, they're speaking in tongues, but they're speaking in tongues about the wonderful works of God. They're praising God for his wonderful works. Acts 10.46, those who were with Peter are baptized in the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and doing what? Magnifying God. The purpose of the spiritual gift of tongues, we observe in Acts, we're taught by Paul, the purpose of the gift of tongues is to praise God. Okay? So that's tongues on the one hand. Prophesying on the other hand, which we understand to mean both foretelling, the way the word is used in the Old Testament, and, I'm sorry, foretelling the way that it's used in the Old Testament, and forthtelling, preaching, the way we understand it as New Testament believers. Both of them are the declaration of God's word to whom? The declaration of God's word properly directed to the people, because God already knows it. Why would Paul rather the Corinthians prophesy as opposed to speaking in tongues? What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? Go back to verse 1. To love and serve and build the body of Christ. What's more loving to the body? Speaking forth the word of God. He who speaks in a tongue, verse 4, edifies himself, builds up himself. It's good for them. But he who prophesies edifies the church, builds up others. It's a blessing to everyone. Now, that's not to say speaking in tongues is bad. Paul hastens to avoid anyone reaching that conclusion. That's not what I'm saying, he says, verse 5. In fact, he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. Why? When we pray corporately, it has nothing to do with business, when we pray together as a group, there's always part of us that's evaluating, isn't there? Am I doing it right? Am I saying the right thing? Am I using the right words? He prayed for a long time. Maybe I should pray for a long time because maybe that's how we pray here. Or maybe I should pray for a short time because he prayed for a long time. Maybe I should balance it out. She called God Papa. Do we do that? Is that okay to do? Should I do that so that people don't look at me funny? Are people looking at her funny and now you're going to look at me funny? So I need... He prayed to Jesus. I thought we prayed to the Father. But do you pray to Jesus? I guess Jesus and the Father are one. The, the, these are the things you think about in, in, in corporate prayer, right? Even, even when we're alone, we can get like that. Not always, but, but not never. I don't think it's just me that, that, that we can get in our heads and end up spending as much time and energy thinking about how we're praying and what we're praying and how we're not praying as we do actually praying. Just, just talking to God. And the beautiful thing about the gift of tongues, for those who have it, the gift of tongues short-circuits that. It allows someone to praise and to pray without the possibility of evaluating because they don't know what it is that they would evaluate. They're just talking to God. So Paul is saying, look, tongues aren't bad. 
analogy, it, it's very similar to how he says in 1 Timothy 4.8, physical exercise isn't bad. Bodily exercise profits a little, he says. It's, it's good. It's not bad. It's good. But godliness, this is his point writing to Timothy, godliness is better. Exercising yourself to godliness is better than exercising yourself to physical health. Better for you, better for the people around you. It's exactly the same way, he says, verse 5, I wish you all spoke in tongues, because tongues are good. But I wish even more that you all prophesied, because prophesying is better. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless, asterisks, unless he interprets that the church might receive edification. There's a way that tongues can build up the church, and that's if someone is there to interpret what's being said. If someone is, is praying or praising in a different language, we can be built up by that if we understand what it is that they're saying. Be because you've had this experience, you, if you hear someone's prayer, just, just you know, praying in English, hearing somebody else's prayer, hearing somebody else's praise, that can soften our hearts, can't it? But see, if I don't know what they're saying, I, I'm just a spectator. I'm just watching, not understanding. But now, brethren, verse 6. And this isn't but change of pace, change of direction. This is but, but go with me on this, is, is, is Paul's sense. Think through this with me. If I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you? How will I edify you? How will I bless you and build you up unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Notice what Paul just did. He said the same thing that he did before, but he just broadened his argument. He started off with a binary. Tongues on the one hand, prophecy on the other hand. He just expanded it. Tongues are good, but revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching are all better. Why? For all of the same reasons that he said before. The gift of tongues, yes, praises the Lord. The other gifts that he named, and other gifts that he didn't name, they edify the body. They love and serve and build Christ's church. Even things without life, verse 7, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? What he's saying is that noise without meaning, noise that's not according to rules or conventions that we understand and agree to, is just noise. You ever hear a toddler play the piano? Now, now in their mind, it's melodious and mellifluous, and in their mind, they're playing... It, but, but what comes out, and that's Paul's point. We have no idea from the sound what's being expressed. And so it doesn't bless us. In fact, we feel assaulted by it. In the same way, verse 8, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? If the trumpet doesn't sound like a trumpet, we don't know what the trumpet is telling us to do. So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand in a language people know, how will you be known what is spoken? You'll be speaking into the air. If you speak in a tongue and there's no one there to interpret, does it bless the hearer? Answer, no. Verse 10, there are, 
It may be so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Languages are great, but that doesn't mean I understand them. And if I don't understand what you're saying, Paul says, how can I be helped by it? How can I be served by it, built up by it? Therefore, what's the action step, Paul? If I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me, and we'll both be frustrated by each other. Even so you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. What's the action step? Paul says, remember what Gail taught you. It's about others. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret, that he may interpret, that someone else may interpret, so that the people listening will understand. Now, it's worth pausing long enough to point out, there are some who try to straddle the line here when it comes to tongues. There are those who will say, yes, the spiritual gifts are for today, and yes, tongues is included in them, but because they're distracting, they're confusing to the hearer, the good and proper and only place tongues should be exercised is alone by yourself in your prayer closet, where, where other people won't hear. I mean, that would be a nice theory, except for the fact that Paul clearly disagrees. Because <laughs> he's talking about how to do church. And he's saying tongues have a place in church, and he wants to tell us what it is. And he's saying if someone is present with a gift of interpretation who can let the other people in on what's being prayed, then tongues can in fact edify the church. How is that edifying? In the same way that, that, that I know that we've all been blessed listening to someone else pray. You've had the experience of, of listening to somebody else pray and, and say, man, that's the prayer I would have prayed if I had the words to pray like that. Man, they captured my heart. I know that you've been blessed by listening to someone worship. Not, not even lead worship, but just you've, you've stumbled by one of our worship leaders rehearsing or someone in your home has, has been singing or playing or worshiping to themselves. And, 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 and that purity of, of spirit and that, that love in their expression to God just, just, just melts you. I remember, I remember at Grayson and Hector's wedding, Grayson's mom saying, you know, one of the things I miss about Grayson being at home is I miss eavesdropping on her private worship. And now I owe Grayson $5. <laughs> but but if, we're, if we're blessed to listen in when someone praises or prays in the Spirit, I mean, how much more so when their words are divinely authored by the Spirit? I mean, think of, it, think of it this way. Anyone here that hasn't been encouraged and built up by psalms? Where do you go when you're downtrodden? Where do you go when you feel far from God? You, I go to psalms. But what are psalms but you and I listening in on David, mostly David's divinely anointed prayer and praise? That, that, that's what tongues amounts to when it's interpreted. We're listening in to someone's divinely anointed prayer or praise when it's interpreted. When, I should add, it's properly interpreted. One of the people, one of the reasons people get the yips about tongues is the potential for misuse and abuse. 
if I'm teaching, you can go Acts 17.11 with me. You can receive the word with all readiness of mind, yet search the scriptures daily to prove whether these things be so. You can check me out, in other words. And I love it when you do. Don't stop doing that. Make sure that what you're hearing across the pulpit accords with God's word. But if someone prays in a tongue and someone else interprets, how do you check out that interpretation? How do you know that that's divinely authored? How do you know what was really said? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know there's one way you can check something that isn't being said. I'm not saying that very well. Let me come at it another way. What's the biblical purpose of tongues? We talked about it earlier. Praising the Lord. Verse 2, he who, who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Acts 10.46, they spoke in tongues and magnified the Lord, right? So someone who speaks in tongues in a home group or a prayer meeting or at a retreat is, is, is speaking in tongues. Someone gives them an interpretation, and the interpretation is, oh, my little children, how I long for you to repent and return to me. What do you say? Time out. That's not a correct interpretation. How do you know? Who are you to tell me that's not the correct interpretation? In love, you want to say, here's the thing. Tongues are men and women speaking to God, not God speaking to us. So I don't think that's really an interpretation. I mean, the, the person giving that interpretation or that whatever it is, may not be evil or heretical or demonic. I mean, probably they just have something that's weighing on their hearts that they really want to convey to the group. And, and that's fine to say, you know, it's really on my heart that, that, that we would seek the Lord and repent of our sin and, 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 and return to him. That's nothing wrong with that. Just don't, thus saith the Lord it. Don't claim that a prayer spoken in a tongue is a message from God. Scripture just said it won't be. Anyhow, verse 11, Paul starts to pull his, his, his argument together. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Which again, doesn't make it bad. Bypassing understanding and reason can make prayer sweeter and stronger. Bypassing understanding and, and editing and and. and Lack of faith can make, make my prayer purer. Because if I pray in tongues, I just pray. And that's good, Paul says. But without interpretation, that's all it is. It doesn't edify the body. It doesn't bless anyone, serve anyone, doesn't build up anyone. What's the conclusion then, verse 15? Bottom line is, Paul. Paul says, I'm going to pray with the Spirit. I'll pray in tongues. And I'll also pray with the understanding. I'll pray not with tongues. I'll do both at different times, depending on where I am and who I'm with. I'll sing with the Spirit when I'm alone, or maybe in certain situations when I'm with others, where there's interpretation. But more often when I'm with others, I'll sing with the understanding, with words others understand. Otherwise, verse 16, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other isn't edified. I'll sometimes encourage folks when we have a, a night of prayer and worship on a, on a Wednesday, typically, when I'm giving instructions at the beginning, a lot of times I'll say, hey, be sure to pray loud enough so that we can all hear. Why? Because I can't amen a prayer that I can't hear. What am I saying when I say amen? I'm saying, me too. 
Right? I'm, 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 add, my, add my voice to their voice, God. Double, double down on that prayer, because I'm with them. But I can't do that if I can't hear it. Same thing with tongues. I can't amen a tongue if I don't understand it. I thank my God, verse 18, I speak with tongues more than you all. Tongues are good, Paul says again. Yet in the church, when we're gathered together, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also. I'd rather speak five words that are going to build people up than 10,000 in a tongue. Because I can do that when I'm alone, Paul says. I can pray in a tongue anytime. But when I'm together, what's my priority? When we're together, I'm thinking of others. When we're together, we get to prioritize each other. If you talk to worship leaders, most of them aren't singing the same songs in their private personal worship that they're doing on the platform here. Not, I mean, maybe some overlap, but it's, it's not all the same. On a pretty regular basis, worship leaders will pass around songs and, and, and say, hey, I've been worshiping to this in my car. I've been praising to this at home. I've been pouring my heart out to this song on my back deck. And, you know, and collectively in the music ministry, we'll, we'll, we'll listen and we'll decide, hey, is this a song for corporate worship, for, for group worship? And sometimes we'll say, yeah, that'd be great. Let's bring that in. More often, actually, we say, yeah, that, that, that's not a song for church. Sometimes because it just won't connect with everyone. It's, it's sort of narrowly targeted. Other times, it's hard to sing. It requires vocal gymnastics, or it's just keyed way too high, or has this sick range. Sometimes it's just way too wordy. Doesn't mean it's a bad song. Doesn't mean that it's not able to bring certain people directly into God's throne room. It just means that if we brought it in for Sunday morning, it wouldn't love and prioritize others in the way that a good corporate worship song should. And it's that, it's that desire to prioritize others, especially the new believer or the non-believer that, that, that Paul's talking about, that leads us here at Calvary to, to not really encourage the use of tongues on a Sunday morning. And when I say Calvary, I mean Calvary Wichita. I mean, I mean, I mean us. Because, because not all Calvaries are, are the same. Every Calvary is its own church. There are Calvaries that you go in and they will teach you to speak in tongues. They, they, they believe that it's a normative experience and, and they lean Pentecostal that way. And they'll try to get you to speak in tongues. I, I know of a Calvary not far from here that if you speak in tongues, they will take you aside and try to break you of, of, of that habit. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're a big tent. But, but here... Our conviction is that, is that the, the public exercise of tongues is potentially confusing, maybe discouraging to the non-believer, to the new believer, who doesn't really understand what's going on or the biblical basis for it. And I, and I think that's consistent. I think that's in line with what Paul says in this next handful of verses. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it's written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I'll speak to this people, this is God talking, yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, make a mark or put a finger at verse 22, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Paul, what are you saying? And why are you saying it? 
Because it doesn't really seem to make sense, right? Let's keep going because I want to get some context for some things I want to say about verse 22. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? What would you think if you walked into a church for the first time and everyone is speaking in tongues and you don't understand any of it, you never read Acts 2, you have no context for it, what do you think? These people are nuts. And yeah, maybe if you don't turn and run the other way, maybe, you know, if Robert Shy doesn't tackle you and convince you to hang around, we might, might convince you that we're not insane. But would you feel loved? Would you feel served? Would you feel the slightest bit closer to God? I'm thinking no. What does that unbeliever need? Whether they're a seeker with their hands out, whether they're a skeptic with their arms folded, they're probably walking in already confused by life and philosophy and religion and all of these denominations and Christians who say one thing and do another thing. What do they need? What's going to bless them, love them, serve them? The gospel. The preaching of God's word unto salvation, which is what Paul says in verse 24. If all prophesy instead of speaking in tongues, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all of the truth of God's word. He's convicted by all because the Holy Spirit shows him to himself. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. He's laid bare before God and man. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you because God has come to live in him. That makes sense, right? So, so if we back up, then what do we do with verse 22? If you're me, and if you disagree, we're still friends, I promise. But if you're me, I think it's a copyist error. Not an error by the Holy Spirit or by Paul because they don't make errors like that. I think it's a mistake that some scribe made late at night copying from one scroll to another scroll by candlelight. And we know this happens. There, there are instances of this in even the best manuscripts where we say that that has to be missing a zero. I think he added instead of subtracted there. I think that he has the wrong preposition here. I think there's a word left out there. And, and so my conclusion is that verse 22 should read something along the lines of tongues are for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Prophesying is for unbelievers and for those who believe. For all the reasons Paul just gave us. I hope that makes sense. Because this is a hugely important idea, and this is the idea that I hope that you're going to put in your, 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 your doggy bag and take home with you at the end of this morning. This is the takeaway for today. The conversation we've been having about tongues, perfectly good and valid conversation for the church. This is a good conversation for brothers and sisters filled with the Spirit, reading Scripture with spiritual eyes, asking God to show us how to apply Spirit-breathed truth to our lives. But it's less productive. I'm going to say counterproductive for the person who hasn't decided what to do with Jesus. So why do we go there so stinking always? Why do we subject the unbelievers in our lives to peripheral issues? 
and ask them to choose what they think about things like the proper place of tongues or the right understanding of Calvinism and Arminianism and free will and predestination and the obscure nuances of prophecy. I mean, those are all good conversations to have amongst ourselves because if we have them respectfully and well, the result should be that we dive in the word together and reason together and compare scripture with scripture and that's almost always a good thing. But too often we bring up controversial topics around unbelievers. We want to talk about spiritual gifts or predestination or prophecy, not as an invitation for the believer, but as a provocation to the unbeliever. Who do you think is right? Who do you think is more spiritual? Choose wrong and you're going to hell. (laughs) Happened to my daughter just the other day. She was driving up to McPherson to pick up something that she bought on Facebook Marketplace. Yes, she took somebody else with her. Yes, she met in a public place. Yes, it got weird. Because after they finished the deal, the seller says, oh, by the way, this is for you. And what he handed her wasn't the Gospel of John, wasn't a tract or a copy of his testimony. It was a handout on the bare sheet prophecy. If you don't know, I didn't know either. But what it is is a prophecy that claims to use mathematical codes, Bible codes, to unlock hidden prophecies in the Bible, one of which says that Jesus is coming back in 2028, which means that the rapture happens Rosh Hashanah of this year. You might want to mark the date on your calendar. You don't want to to miss it. (laughs) Now, Now, here's the thing. He didn't know she was the daughter of the world's biggest prophecy geek. Didn't know that she was majoring in theology. Didn't even know that she was a Christian. And that's what he decides to share with her? Not something fringe. Not something really fringe. Something even Patrick thinks is fringe. What did Paul just tell us? What did he just tell us the unbelieving and the uninformed need? Because he should have assumed that's who she was. They need, verse 24, prophesying. The foretelling, the preaching of God's word. They need the gospel that they might be convinced of the truth of God's word and convicted of their sin and converted by Christ's love. Why why are you coming at me, Patrick? I'm not giving anybody any weird books. I'm not linking to any weird websites. Me neither. But what are we doing when we're one of two people at work that everyone knows is Christian and we spend our lunch arguing about Calvinism and not talking to anybody about the love of God. What are we doing when all anybody wants to talk about at the Bible club in our school is whether there were dinosaurs on the ark and not the amazing picture of God's mercy and justice that is the ark? I mean, I almost did it yesterday. I'm not, I'm not chucking rocks. I'm scrolling Facebook yesterday and someone posted, Christians need to stop getting ready for the rapture and need to get ready for the Antichrist because the mark of the beast is here. Oh, I mean, wave a red flag in front of a bull, right? I'm like, okay, ah, I'm going to set her straight because we're going to bring some 2 Thessalonians 4. We're going to go pivot over to Matthew 24. We're going to end up at Daniel 9. Boom! And the Holy Spirit said, shut up. I said, wait, what do you mean? I'm going to bring the fire here. He said, yeah, Why? 
because I'm going to set her end times calendar straight and not just her, but anybody scrolling her feed, anybody reading her post, they're going to find out what's true and they're going to find out that I'm the truth teller and they're going to realize I'm an idiot. Because <laughs> for most of the people reading someone's Facebook, posting about prophecy, I can say whatever I want to say and I'm going to be doing what? Speaking in tongues. Because seriously, in that scenario, or any of those scenarios, who, who ends up loved? When someone's only exposure to Christians is watching them argue, how do they get closer to God? When someone is told it's not what the Bible says, it's the spaces between the letters that have the deep things, what do they learn about Jesus? And when someone's first exposure to church leaves them confused and frustrated, who gets saved? Yeah, Proverbs 25, 2. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. And who are we in Christ? Priests and kings. We get to dig deep. And you know that's what we do here. Greatest discovery of my life was that this book isn't childish or simplistic. It's profound and it's elegant and it's supernaturally engineered by God himself with a message so deep and nuances so intricate a thousand lifetimes wouldn't be enough to begin to scratch the surface of all of its treasures. But man, we get to start. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we get to dive deep into the mystery and the subtlety of God's word. And I think you know that's my passion, one of them. And, and many of you are here because you share that passion. But what none of us can forget, what we must remember is the simplicity of the gospel. I don't know who it was that first said the thing about God's word. It's deep enough that an elephant can dive into it, but a child can still bathe in it. We've got to remember that. And share that so others can discover that. The simple gospel that God so loved the world, he sent his son to save us. When we rebelled and made ourselves enemies of our creator, God loved us while we were sticking our thumb in his eye. He loved us enough to say, you keep going the way you're going. We're going to be apart forever let me give you another chance. I'll send my son and he'll pay the penalty for your sin. I'll pour out my justice on him so that we've got a chance to reconcile in my mercy. Jesus traded places with us at the cross. We've got to be ready to share that and eager to share that and able to share that because so many people need to discover that. We're going to keep digging deep into God's word. But as we do, we need to remind each other, the volume of this book is written of him. Jesus is on every page. And all of those pages taken together tell us the story of our redemption by a God who came to save us. And, and we get to share that story. Wednesday, starting in June, we're going to go hard into prophecy. And if you don't think I'm excited, you don't know me. But we have to remember that every major prophecy in Scripture speaks of Jesus. And our primary purpose on earth is to speak of Jesus in a way people can understand.
And, 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 you know, through all of it, hey, by all means, speak in tongues if God has given you that gift. It's a beautiful, precious, amazing gift. But as you do, if you do, please speak in tongues remembering the God you're speaking to is the God who came to save He's the one who came into the world to die for our sin. And that's something that needs to be said as clearly as possible, as often as possible, by as many people as possible, through all of the gifts God has given us. Lord, we thank you for your son. We praise you for your mercy. We're in awe of your justice and how you reconciled mercy and justice on the cross. Only you could have done. And it's only because of your love that you did. Lord, we treasure and remember Paul's word this morning, his first words this morning. Pursue love. When we do, it always leads us back to you. And we get to bring you to others.